Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. college football podcast hosted by yours truly Nicole Auerbach I'm thrilled to be joined by my friend and colleague Michael Feller of Stadium to break down the biggest storylines in college football this week in an hour or less if you enjoy this podcast be sure to subscribe rate and review the Andy Staples and Friends show five stars because much like your favorite recruits we want to make an immediate impact and and Felder there is there's only one story of the day to us to to the two of us for this specific podcast the most major story of the day is that Max Gilliam has finally acknowledged going on below deck. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> hour back, that was huge. Like, I and, and my wife literally, like, when he, when as soon as the names came up, I was like, that's the quarterback for UNLV. I know exactly who that is. And she was like, it's the who? And I was like, it's the quarterback for UNLV. He's the quarterback, plays in the Mountain West. I know exactly who he is. And then I was like, I'm not going to tweet about this because maybe, like, I don't want him to get in trouble. I don't want, like... Well, well, so so I actually, I did, I think that was my immediate thought, was not, is he going to get in trouble, but is he allowed to do this, right? Like, yeah. I guess the, okay, so basically, for those who don't know the show, the show is a reality show about the people who work on the crew of a super, super yacht. Super yacht, yeah. Like, Super ritzy. So where are they this season, Felder? They're in Mediterranean? No, no, no. This is Below Deck. So Below Deck takes place, I believe, in the Caribbean. So it's like Antigua, and it's all the – they go to Jamaica, and they go to all these other places. So they're there, and then it shows up. It's Dax and Max. They're the co-charters. Show up. And I mean, they're it, they're twenty one year old kids, just like you know doing. Which they're little... never they're never that young. Like never. usually, these are like really really rich, like fifty sixty year old people who can afford a super yacht. Like, and they bring yeah. like eight of their friends. So this was a group of like 21, 22 year olds that all looked like they were about fourteen. Yeah, it was. Whew, it was um, it was a rough. I mean, but here's the th- here's what I will say, and I understand that he issued an apology and. He said, I'm sorry, that's not the character that I have, and yada, yada, yada. Well, no, no, no. Let me, let me read you part of the go. apology. Okay. <laughs> this, we need to, this is the greatest apology in the history of sports apologies. Um, I'll just read you the whole thing. I would like to apologize for my poor judgment while on the TV show Below Deck and acknowledge that I have made a mistake that I will learn from. While it was not my idea or any of my friends' ideas to eat sushi off of a model, I should have exercised better judgment and declined the idea immediately when it was brought up by the producers. This is not a reflection of my character or the way I was raised, nor a reflection of the culture of UNLV football. I'd like to humbly move past this and focus my time and energy on our game against the University of Hawaii this weekend. I mean, that's it's. I mean, it's gold. It's 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 gold. And here's the reality. Um, what I was going to say is. They did a. They ate everything. Like they were, they were the most twenty-one-year-olds of twenty-one-year-olds because they were not picky. 
they were they were the best charter because all they wanted to do was drink and hang out and they ate whatever the food was hey do you guys have chicken tenders cool that's awesome like the chef did the least amount of work ever and it was like okay sure they like anything because they're 21 Yes, and all they wanted was mimosas at all times. So it kind of reminded you of, of like pre-pandemic times when life was a little simpler yes. and you could just hang out on the super yacht that somebody gifted to some group of friends and, and drink mimosas. But it was truly incredible. And honestly, I feel like you and I were the only people who truly appreciated the college football crossover content with Below Deck because like Jamel Hill's been on it. Like there have been people that have been in our space crossover into the below deck world johnny damon but not, but not the quarterback at unlv which is like peak like diehard college football so i loved it that is big news um also the apology comes like two and a half weeks after the episode aired so i don't yes. know what to make of, of that piece as well um the actual big news of the day um we're recording this on monday afternoon evening is scott satterfield um he continues to put his foot in his mouth over and over and over again. So I'm going to set up the timeline Felder, and then you can tee off when you're ready. Like, and, and what's amazing about this is we didn't even need to save this for the last call. Like we're just teeing off right out of the gate. So Scott Satterfield interviews with South Carolina, or at least talks to South Carolina, then denies it, then does it again. Uh, then it comes out again that he did this and his latest defense seems to be that he really loves his family. They're in North Carolina. This job is in South Carolina, but it's closer. Um, and Louisville's a great place. But one of his, when he gave an interview explaining why he wanted to stay at Louisville, which may not have been his choice if he didn't get offered the job, um, he says that one of the great things about Louisville is the airport being very close to campus, not a great line. Then on Monday, he goes and gives a press conference and continues to say more things that you shouldn't say instead of sticking to talking points. He basically says that decisions should be different for coaches because they have families to think about and careers to think about and college students are only places, they're making decisions for three or four years about where they wanna to go to school. Um, I wish that I was describing it in a crueler way than what he actually said, but it, it basically is exactly what he said. And again, the intonation, the way he said it, it didn't mean to be mean spirited, but there's no real other way to see it. And so it was just again and again, he just is not handling this well. We've all interviewed for jobs while we've had a job and you just, you don't do all of these things, but it comes out that that's what you did. Yeah. He, um, he checked every box for what not to do. Um, and he checked them repeatedly, and then he went back and rechecked them. And I think that uh, on the surface, like, so we'll go top view, and then we'll get into, like, the points that – the things that he said. But the top view for me is he thinks that he's, like, winning us back to his side. It was such a cool story, and the guy from App State got the job at Louisville, and now he's making it work, and he made an offensive line coach, his offensive coordinator, and Dwayne Ledford, and this is so cool. And it's family atmosphere, and he doesn't let guys wear hats in the building anymore, and yada, yada, yada. And then all of a sudden it was just like, wait, have you been miserable this whole time? Like, have you been absolutely miserable and you hate it? And listen, I will say this. As someone who lives in Chicago who has family in North Carolina, being away from home is hard. 
There ain't no place like North Carolina, buddy, and the closest thing to it is South Carolina. That's the worst part. But <laughs> it is, but but you can't talk that way. You can like you got to talk about how much you love the job, and that's the thing. And I say this as someone who like, listen, I'm not a I'm not a huge fan of no. Everybody knows this. I'm not a big Chicago fan, but I do actually like my job. I like my job and the job that I do, and I care about my family too, and I like the work that I do, and so. He should be talking about how he likes the football part of the work, not talk, not like giving people an avenue for how he doesn't like Louisville or being away from his family. And so I wrote down some talking points here. I'm going to my notebook, and you can see Nicole here. I'm going to my notebook, going to my notes. You can also see some very uh, triumphant artwork, which is mostly just scribble scrabbles from my kid. And I'm going to the points that I hit. He hit on family. The idea that, and he, he, and I'll preface this by saying, he said that kids are making a decision for three to four years and it's just them. They only have to worry about themselves. The idea that college football players are that selfish, I think is incredibly um, naive and to the point of being callous. And so when I look at this and I look at the idea of family, there are pl- what you're asking is for players to move away from their family to go play football for you. You're, you're asking them to leave their family to go do a thing for you so that you can get more money to get to the job that you actually want to have. You're asking them to do that for you. So the least that you can do is not treat it as their three- to four-year transients and treat them like they're people. That's the first part of it, what he said. That really stood out to me. The next part is, well, I have we coaches have a career to think about. Well, guess what college is supposed to be about? Creating your life after college. When they sit in your living room and they tell you that I'm going to take you from a boy to a man – and I'm going to prepare you for life after football, that's career. That's career. That's life. Those are life goals. That's the whole thing. And if he only views his players as three- to four-year transients, people just moving through, shuffle them in, shuffle them out, that's not the attitude to take. And from everyone that I've talked to, my old coach, the guy that recruited me to UNC, he works on that staff. And I know because he texts me on my birthday still. He hits me up on the routine. Gunnar Brewer hits me up on the routine. I know that he doesn't view players as just three- to four-year options and moving through. So that's not what it is. And then the other part, life after football, are you saying that you're done with these guys after that? Because that's not a good take. And then the, the, the last thing is he didn't even say four to five years. He didn't say, four, like, you've been in this industry long enough, and so have I. Four to five years is your standard, right? Like, when a guy says, uh, for the next three years I'm going to LSU or Alabama, like, Oftentimes, there are a lot of people that get upset that he doesn't say four years because they're like, oh, he thinks he's just going to go to the NFL. But the reality is, for a coach, you got to look at it as four to five years because maybe you want to redshirt that guy or maybe things don't go well, especially right now in COVID when everybody's going to get an extra bonus year if they want to take it. So it's very frustrating. That part's frustrating. And then talking to some folks at Louisville and the idea that, like, it, it, it you know what it, it, it feels like, Nicole, is, is – he got embarrassed that somebody called him on his BS about not about not interviewing or not wanting the job or not entertaining the offers of other jobs. He got embarrassed that somebody called him on his BS. Then he tried to win everybody back to his side by saying, like, see, things are hard for me. And we're not buying it, dude. Like, plain and simple, right? I don't understand why this was the talking point that he is going in on even the hill to die on why is this his hill to die on i we all miss our families we all love our parents you're rich you can fly your parents to live with you near you 
I saw somebody made the joke, um, you know, you could literally have picked up their exact house, put it on a truck, brought it to Louisville with the amount of money you have. Or here, here's another reason you could, what you do if you get caught in something like this, you say, this is life-changing money, SEC money, guaranteed money, life-changing money. And then, you know what, if I'm his, one of his players, I go, I respect that. Yeah. But this I don't respect. And it's going to be so hard to climb and dig yourself out of this hole. A, to win back over anyone in Louisville, which were, they were already upset about this because he's only been there a year and change. Plus, it's been a frustrating year. And at the same point, you also have recruits to think about. How are you going to recruit after this? When you're going to be going into, uh, I'm sorry, family rooms for parents and kids, because there are families involved in recruiting, and get these kids to come play for you and, and to be around you. I mean, we all make fun of the family atmosphere and the jokes about that and the corniness of that, but you have to present something like that as, as, as an incentive to come to you. You have to, like you're describing, these are lifelong relationships that you are trying to say that you value, that you want to build, that you want someone to come to you with. And you can say the word family. Yeah, it's cheesy. Like there's a bunch of coaches who will say, yeah, it's the cheesiest thing in the world, but that sentiment has to be there. And when you describe things this way, it doesn't. And, and one other thing that I'll just make a quick point of some of your players have kids. Like that's just a reality of college yeah. football and college sports. So to act like they may not be thinking long-term about their families, their kids, their futures um, also comes across a little tone deaf. So again, I, I don't think he meant for this to be malicious or it to sound selfish, but it does. And that's the problem. And this is part of why, you know, you, you, if you're the coach in particular, but also if you're a school and you're, you're going through a search, a coaching search process, this is why you hire search firms to hire obvious guys. This is why people have agents who did not do a good job of shielding him here or giving him advice or he ignored it or whatever it was, because you don't want things to get out that you're looking for other greener pastures and then to have to do damage control. And again, usually people do damage control a lot better. And I think the closest scenario here is to his fellow ACC member, uh, Virginia Tech and Justin Fuente with his flirtation at Baylor, right? That was very public, but he didn't, he, he said the right things when he came back eventually. Right. And so it still has fractured his relationship with his fan base and I'm sure people there, but this feels like, and maybe again, recency bias too, but this feels like it's more of a, more of a fracturing. And, and now I just don't know how you really go forward. We know winning fixes everything, but there, there's just a really hurt fan base. And this is the fan base that got, you know, screwed over by Bobby Petrino. This is a fan base that has been through a lot. So I don't blame them at all for being furious about this. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. No, I, I don't blame them either. I think that, um, and, and uh, what is it, Physical Cam, I believe, on, on Twitter mentioned the good point of, like, if you view your players as just, like, labor, as, like, you know, like, that's not the way to do it. And, and 
and it almost felt like and I, I guess you're right. I don't know what you do moving forward because they don't particularly want to fire him, but it's really hard to retain. And, and as someone who I this week for me is all about recruiting, I'm just kind of like brushing up and getting back to where I need to be for next week. It's um, it's gonna hurt, and it's not gonna feel good. And it's gonna be more more than it's more than damage that he's done. It's also giving ammunition to other programs, and mm-hmm. that's something that that that's that's just as bad as losing. It is. It's it's giving other teams reasons, giving other teams bullets in their clips to let them shoot at you for why you sh- like if they can shoot holes in why that kid should go there instead of come to their program instead of coming to their not why a kid should not go to Louisville and instead go to their own respective program. That's a lot of extra. That's a lot of free work that you're doing for whether it's Jeremy Pruitt or it's Mac Brown or it's it is Fuente or it is Bronco Mendenhall or or Mark Stoops. It's all these guys are getting this extra like, oh, by the way, did you see his press? No, don't don't worry, I can play it for you because this is the way that he looks at you. Do you want to go to a place that just views you as a three- to four-year transient, or do you want to go somewhere where we look to build men out of boys and we look to take care of you? Not just what We're not asking what you can do for Kentucky football, but we're also asking how Kentucky, can football, how Kentucky football can set you up for life. And I think that's important to acknowledge because mm-hmm. that is a massive misstep that he's made. And it's, 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 it's interesting with respect to Appalachian State for me because they had such a long history with Jerry Moore. And then you get to – you get Satterfield, and then you also get Drinkwitz. And yep. Drinkwitz had a great press conference this past week talking about Arkansas being their rival and, like, getting fans to buy into the idea of, like, listen, Tennessee, Georgia, South Carolina, we're not going to even talk about the school that's across the state border, the J-whatevers. We're not going to talk about them. Arkansas wants to be our rival. They'll be our rival. And we'll battle it out for the Ozarks, and that's what it is. And – he understands who he's talking to. I think Satterfield has a massive misunderstanding. And and I talked to our guy, Mark Ennis. I think Satterfield doesn't know, know how to read a room. And if you can't read a room, then you don't even – like when you're in hot water, you're already cooking. Right. It, it, it was reading the room that went wrong, like totally misjudged everything. And then even talking. I mean, if you're not ready to do this – you shouldn't be meeting with the media. You cost, shouldn't be doing interviews. It you just, you, to if you up. need to cool off, you got to cool off. And again, it's just, it, there, there, it was everything that could go wrong, um, went wrong because of his own doing in this process. And, and I think you're absolutely right, you know, about Eli understanding more what he walked into. And he had an uphill climb too, because he left App State after one year as a head coach, right? So you have these guys who are clearly want the bigger jobs. They they want to step up in their careers, but you have to be ready. And then you have to understand the culture of the place that you're at, which is different everywhere. Um, and it's, you know, if Scott Satterfield wanted to stay at App State forever and that's where he really wanted to be, that's a totally different thing than than taking the Louisville job and then doing this the first time there was a job open in the Carolinas. So let's let's talk briefly about the guy who got the job because he was also introduced on Monday. Very soon after all of the the kerfluffle happened um, with Scott Satterfield and, you know, it's Shane Beamer and it's interesting. I I think the reaction to this hire was very interesting. This is obviously a last name that college football fans know. 
Um, and you know, this is, this is someone that the, the, the brass at, at South Carolina really wanted my colleague, Josh Kendall. He has been reporting that, that he was kind of the front runner from the very beginning. He just has never been a coordinator has never been a head coach before. I'm curious your reaction to that. And, and also this job, because it's not an easy job. It's very hard to win there. And, you know, if you were to rank it in the order of sec jobs, it wouldn't be near the top. So what do you make of Shane and what do you make of his fit at this program? Well, I'm going to go job first and job first. Let's be real in the sec East, just by just in the East. It's better than Kentucky. It's better than Vanderbilt. And then what do we, we have a debate about Mizzou, right? Sure. I mean, correct me if I'm wrong. You, if I, if you think I'm wrong, you tell me. No, I, no, I, th- I think you're right. Right. So that's where we are. We know we're behind Georgia and Florida and Tennessee. We know they're behind there. So it's not an easy job. And then you throw that into the hierarchy of the SEC as a whole. And we're talking about they're elbowing around being a double-digit job because LSU, Auburn, Alabama, A&M slide in with Georgia, Florida, Tennessee. And now we're, we're looking at – what is that? I can't do this. Seven schools. So now we're elbowing around at that 8, 9, maybe 10 range. So that's, that's the reality of the job. Well, and, and throw in North Carolina being good and then, or well, being on the upward trajectory. Well, then you throw in, yes, outside of the SEC, now we throw in the fact that UNC looks like they're on the up and up. Okay, that's a problem. And then who knows what's going to happen at Virginia Tech. And, and, oh, by the way, Clemson is still the predominant force in your own state. That's recruiting really well. So it's not an easy job. You have a lot of things to overcome. Um, but when we get to Beamer, and I think Beamer's interesting because they were not happy with him when he was at Georgia. Because he is, and I, I, I hope folks understand what I'm saying when I say this, but he's a massager. Same as his dad. They're a mas- they massage the situation, right? And that's great long term for big results. They massaged that Hampton Roads H2O area to the point where of course, if you're good at football, you're going to Virginia Tech. Where else are you going to go? And they did it really well, and they did a great job of that. But they are not the aggressor. And to put it in like – I don't I, – I, I'm trying to think of a metaphor to come up with, but in the SEC, and that's why folks weren't happy with him when he was at Georgia, is because he didn't go out and attack on recruiting. He built on relationships, and he built this – He we talked about it with um, – Jesus, I just completely forgot what Satterfield. We talked about the familial aspect of college football. He wants to build on that, and that's how they build a lot of success at Virginia Tech together. Him, his father, the rest of that staff, Bud Foster, they massage that, and they they build this goodwill where absolutely these are the guys that I want taking care of my son. And in the SEC, a lot of it is go, go hard, go now, get the guy, get the guy, get the guy, get the guy, attack, 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 attack. And – He's bringing more of that massaging, that finesse to what they're going to do in recruiting. And I I just wonder how it's going to work when at the end of the day, here's the reality, Nicole. Next week week on Wednesday is National Signing Day, right? Yes, despite the fact that it will be in the middle of a regular season week for a lot of teams. Yes, that's a a nightmare in and of of itself, (laughs) but like. You can finish number 17 in the country and still finish next to last in the SEC East in recruiting. You can finish 20th in the country, and that sounds great to everyone, except for you look around and like you're looking up and you're looking at like, 
Oh, okay. So Tennessee beat us, and then Georgia beat us too, and Florida also got us. And mm-hmm. oh man, okay, all right. Well, we got to deal with this for the next four or five years. We got to deal with all these players that they just brought in. I thought I thought three or four. <laughs> You're picking up what I put down, but no, I um, I think that it's a. It, the job's tough. I think for him, I think I do think that building relationships is going to work really well. I think it's – but here's the reality. How much time are they going to give him? That's the question. That's always – it's always the question. And and I think that it, the three or four or four or five-year thing, it's, it's kind of relevant here. Three yeah. or four years these head coaches get, right? I mean, yeah. think about where Jeremy Pruitt is with his fan base right now. Yeah. You know, they're, they're, they you turn, they turn on you quickly. They have high expectations. And, you know, when, when you get wins and you at a place like South Carolina, you're taking them away from somebody who usually gets them. Right. Yep. So you've got to get when you've got to get up when Tennessee is down, you've got to do things like that. So I am with you. I think, um, you know, unsurprising, he wins the press conference. He's a great people guy. We've all enjoyed talking to him. Um, and and we'll see how it goes. But it is a different animal. Um, you know, he's worked with a lot of great coaches. He's been to a lot of different places and obviously the son of a legend. Um, so I, I'm very curious to see how this goes. Um, I also think, you know, and, and we can get into this another time. I'm sure we will as the cycle continues. Uh, you know, about who gets chances like this when they're not a coordinator and who doesn't, right? And um, yeah. we will obviously yeah. be keeping an eye on that as as the cycle continues. But before we before we get out of, uh, I know we got our last calls all, all teed up. Uh, let, let's just hit a couple other quick topics. I, I want to get your thoughts on the reaction to the ACC's championship game protocols, essentially. They sure. decided that they were going to give Notre Dame and Clemson the week off. And Miami fans were mad. People were mad about this. Whereas I think it was a great idea. It makes all the sense in the world to me. I think it puts you in the best position to have a great championship game in a league that has had so many lopsided ones. Um, and right now you have a chance to get two teams into the playoffs. So I think all of that is good. And I think it's really funny that people are mad that they were protecting the top teams. No, I here, here's the thing. And as someone who not only grew up in ACC country, played football in the ACC, worked in the ACC to start. I've been to so many ACC media days. Um, here's the thing. There was, in t- there was a time, Jameis Winston, obviously, pre-Winston even, though, in the, from dating back to the 90s moving forward, where Florida State fans would hold up their schedule and then hold up Alabama's schedule and go, they get a bye before their hard games. Why don't we get a bye before our hard games? What is happening? You need to protect the football teams. And then Clemson fans, same thing. Why do we have to play a Thursday night game right after we just played our toughest game, right? Like, why are, what is happening? You're not protecting the football teams. You're, you, this, is, this is why they call it the All-Carolina Conference, which is, for people that don't know, that's what they call the ACC, the All-Carolina Conference. And it was about Tobacco Road and the whole deal. And now they make a move to – protect football and Miami is like in Florida and Florida State because they want to play the game against Clemson they're like hey man what are you doing you can't do this it literally reminded me of curb your enthusiasm when Larry David goes to the doctor and the doctor says we take patients as they come instead of by appointment times and he's like that's crazy what's the point of an appointment time if you're taking them as they come and then the doctor changes it to we see patients in order of appointment, and then he runs in, has the fight with the girl in the hallway, runs in, and signs his name up. And she's like, well, her appointment's before. She's like, why did you change the policy? 
And the whole point, he's like, me first. That's the policy that I want. And mm-hmm. it's literally watching watching Miami, watching Florida State be like, no, we want it when it works for us. Not overall, just now or then when it was good for us. And so it's it's me first. That's the policy that I want. But I think the ACC has realized, listen, our Brett, you can say all you want, especially who knows how this college basketball season is going to go. But the reality is, we got to focus on football. We got to get that money. We got to pay some bills. We got to make sure everybody else is getting paid. And at the end of the day, you know what? Florida State, Miami, Virginia Tech, another one of the football schools there in the ACC, you're going to get paid in the shade if they get two teams in. So let's just shut up and root for it. And, and listen, I, I'm with you totally. And I think that it's just th- this league, there's been pockets of the league and the different fan bases that have really struggled with Notre Dame being a full member. And, and getting all of the perks and all of the things after, you know, one foot in, one foot out for so many years. And now they're getting taken care of. But they also may be a playoff team for your league. So, yeah. you know, like that's that's the trade-off. And I think it's it's shown us, you know, the SEC has long done this, right? They they let, you know, people play their cupcake games right before the big rivalry mm-hmm. games, November, and they they take care of their top teams. They let them schedule a certain way. We're seeing the ACC make a mid-season change to protect its top teams. And now you've got people wondering if the Big Ten would do the same, if the Pac-12 will do the same. And, and it's it's really interesting how it immediately shifts to that because you could see both sides of these arguments, that people are pissed that it's not quote-unquote fair, mm-hmm. whereas nothing in college football is ever fair. Ever. But also, you know, you, for a week now, we've had people banging on, banging the drum about the Big Ten, change your threshold, let Ohio State in if they only play five games, where right now that game against Michigan is tentatively on. We're recording this Monday afternoon, um, and it's not been canceled yet. It, it, Michigan is trying to play. They're trying to get back to full practicing and to play this game. But you've had these people banging on the drum, and then you have the backlash to that saying, but if you're everyone else in the league, how do you feel about Ohio State getting this preferential treatment? And then in the Pac-12, you've got the fact that Colorado may not make the championship game, even if they're undefeated, because they would play one less divisional game. So you've got these these different scenarios. In it's kind of this perfect microcosm of college football because it's so regional. It's so dependent on what league you're in, who you are, and all these things. So you've got people wondering if you make exceptions or prioritize the brand name schools, the playoff contenders, do you do what's fair? And it's kind of like this fundamental thing and not just in a pandemic, but it it's highlighted all of this that you have to make these types of decisions. And I think that ACC doing that is, is uncomfortable for a lot of people in that league who, again, it, it, you know, maybe they're used to seeing certain exceptions for Duke basketball, but they're not used to seeing it in football. So it's fascinating because the exact same conversations are being had in different ways in other conferences at the same time. Yeah, it's um everything runs kind of parallel. And we're listen, Barry Alvarez when he came out and said maybe we have to reevaluate what we're doing and we might have to, you know, make an exception for them because we want to get a team in the playoff. I think that um one of the things for me Nicole is I think that college football operates from a place of fear constantly. Um because the reality is it's not just the group of 5 versus the power 5, it's everybody in the power five versus everybody else in the power five. And then uh, it's not every conference versus every conference it's every team or every program versus every other program. And so coaches, a lot of the rules we have in college football are legislated down because coaches are like, well, what if he does it really well and I don't do it so well. So we need to put a rule on that so that he can't mm-hmm. do this. And they operate from this place of fear. And so 
for the Big Ten, the fear for them is the reality. And I'm glad you called me on this last week because I completely forgot about Notre Dame. But the fear for them is maybe the playoff doesn't need us because they have Notre Dame. So, well, that scares me. Or, or just maybe I feel like I should be in wherever, yeah. no matter how many games I play, because I'm just good. Yeah, it's it, there's a but I I legitimately think there's this there's a FOMO about it, right? That fear of missing out, of oh no, what if like, and the reason they started their season late? Why? Because everybody else is doing it. I guess we got to get in the pool too. And then we see the Pac-12 is like, they're like, they showed up to the party and it's like 11.45 and most of the people are gone, but they're like, I guess we're going to get in the pool too. And I think that FOMO is real and these guys... Well, FOMO, again, to your point about fear driving everything, the fear of missing out drove a lot of things, yes. right? But but I think that there is a sense of entitlement in, yeah. in, in this Ohio State conversation, Bingo. that they're entitled, as long as they got into the fall calendar, that they should be in the playoff. Which, again, you watch them, you do think this is one of the four best teams in the country. But this is why I've been saying for a few days now, this conversation about should they make the title game if they only play five games is the wrong point. They need to play somebody this weekend. Yeah. Because then they can get up to seven games in, which feels better when you're comparing them to 11 game seasons that Clemson, Notre Dame, these other teams will have. But they already told Nebraska, you can't play anybody else. You could bump a Big Ten team to play. I mean, this would have worked out better. Again, we don't know. At this point of recording, we don't know for sure that Minnesota and Michigan will be able to play. Yeah. My you know, scenario that I would do is take Minnesota's opponent, which is Nebraska, have them play Rutgers, have Rutgers opponent Maryland play Ohio State because their game got canceled, so you don't have a rematch, whatever. But but I think the key overall is Ohio State needs to play games. That's their only knock on them right now is, is the amount of games played. So I just think it's really interesting how, how all of this unfolded in different ways, in different places. But before we go, we got to do our last calls. This is the segment that we do, and it's a rant or a reason for cheers. Usually we're, we're in sour moods. Usually we're still heated <laughs> about something. Um, mine is going to be honestly kind of both. Mine's a mix. So I'm going to go first, and then and then you're going to take us home, Felder. But there we go. mine is about BYU and Coastal. I think this was one of the best games in the year. I loved it. I thought it was amazing. I think it was great, especially for the fact that it was scheduled like two and a half days before it was played. That's what the quality – of football was good. I think we learned a lot about both teams. And I think here's my rant part. There are going to be people out there saying BYU shouldn't have played the game. They just lost a New Year's Six spot, whatever, whatever, whatever. They absolutely should have played the game. That was a game of the year. Game day was there. It was awesome. It was about, it was a celebration of both of these programs and a spotlight that we don't always get outside of playoff teams. And, and, and BYU wasn't a playoff team. They were a team that was in contention for a New Year's Six spot. Now you've got a team in Coastal Carolina that also should be in New Year's Six Bowl team. We'll have to see where they where they where they check in. But we learned a lot. This is a program that is young, that is new. This is you know it, it was just incredible. The Mormons versus Mullet shirts, amazing. This is the the cheers part of the last call. Like they were just incredible. They were perfect. There was nearly a fight. In this game, with two teams that didn't know each other, didn't even have each other on the schedule three days prior, now we know at some point there will be a return game to Provo. I love it. Like, this is a rivalry that I didn't know that I needed, and now I need it, and I need it every year, and I'm going to just remind them constantly they need to play this. 
But I just, I, I thought it was awesome. And it was really refreshing as someone who's spent so much of their time focused on the playoff prism of this sport to get a game like that. So cheers to BYU, even though you won't drink it. Cheers to Coastal. You will drink for them. Thank you for that game. Oh, that was that was great. That was that was fantastic. No, I um, I will say this about the fight, the near fight, if you will. If you're a quarterback and you throw an interception, get on the ground, get to the sidelines, because the entire the 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 modus operandi for defensive linemen, linebackers, is go find the quarterback and, and put him in the ground. So that's a thing that happens. It's a thing that you're coached to do. I'm not upset that they did it. Um, I will go into mine, and you know what? I am going to be a little positive here. I'm gonna be, All right. I'm gonna be positive. I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna tip my cap. I'm gonna toast to Nick Saban. He is a football coach who and and and, and as you mentioned pre-show to me, we could do Nick Saban every week, but I wanna just give him I wanna put it out on Front Street. I love the fact that he's an evolving football coach. So often we see coaches refuse or unable to evolve in who they are and their strategy and the way that they play football and I um, I was talking to a friend of ours, right, Stephen Hartzell, uh, over at IMG, over at Learfield, and uh, he asked me what I'm looking for in the LSU-Alabama game, and I said, I want to see if they can put up more than Auburn. I want to see if they can win by by 38 instead of 37. And lo and behold, they go out and they do it. And this is a team, this is a guy, and remember this, this is a guy that wanted to win football games 17 to 10. And now his team scores, score, and scores some more. This is amazing to watch the evolution of Nick Saban, and I feel, quite honestly, I think it's probably the thing in this industry that I have enjoyed the most is watching a true master at his craft, a guy that works, that earns, that gets it, and is able to 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 to, to evolve what he does as a football coach. I think it's really really awesome, and and and. And then well, I'll go negative. I also think that the way that he sticks that needle into Urban Meyer is, is remarkable with the idea that, like, hey, man, I'm the best. I'm the best, and I'm the best that's ever done it. And guess what? You're never going to be better than me ever, which is where I think Urban gets that little bit of an itch, that itch to get back into coaching to prove, no, I am good. <laughs> and so there's that. And then the other part for me, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to a little tag on the back end, Ed Orgeron losing his mind. I mean, he can't keep a lid on this pot anymore. I mean, this is the guy that we saw at Ole Miss, right? This is It's the same guy we saw at Ole Miss. He has no idea what the solutions are to his problems except for to yell at them. And listen, I got a two-year-old, and she yells all the time. But it doesn't get anything done. So maybe you're going to have to work on some problem solving, my guy. Um, that's it. That's what I got for you. Cheers. And, and you know, and again, the that goes back to – it's so impressive what Nick Saban's done with different assistants, different styles of play. He doesn't, we've seen him flip out. There's, you know, if you search for the gif, it's the one gif, the one time he yelled, yelled at Lane Kiffin, we caught it, whatever. Are you a and gift, it's incredible, you're a but he doesn't do that that often. He doesn't lose his cool when he's adapting and figuring something out when he's yeah. caught in an uncomfortable situation. No, I'm a, I'm by the way, I'm a gif. I'm a gif guy. No, no. All right. We'll, we'll save that argument for next week. I mean, that is just, you know, it, it would be a J if it was supposed to be Jeff. Okay, like I'm, I'm just saying, it's, it's GIF. The guy who created it. I don't care. He can't. I, no. He made it. He picked the wrong letter. Then he made it and said it. It's a GIF. I am just saying we will debate this in its entirety next time.
we're out of time for now. Um, but Felder, we will have lots of takes next week because it is signing day. And I know you are knee deep in all of this. You'll be all prepped and ready to go. Probably have more coaches to talk about, hopefully more games played. Um, so thank you for listening to power hour this week. Andy Staples will be back tomorrow. His buddy and our friend Ari Wasserman will be back with Andy on Friday as they, again, I, I don't even know how they come up with some of these bets and, and some of these promises that they make to you listeners. Um, I feel bad if anyone takes any of their ideas and actually puts money on it. We will be back. Bleh. But we will be back next Tuesday on Power Hour. Uh, for Michael Felder, I'm Nicole Auerbach. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.